This morning, we're turning to a text. That's not long ago. I think I remember preaching on it. And I figure it will not be long in the future before I preach upon it again. For it is so full of meaning, so full of promise. And it's John 10, verse 10. The best offer anyone will ever make you. That's the heading to go with our consideration of John 10, verse 10. I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. There it is. There is the statement frequently preached. This passage is frequently mangled. I'm sure it is by preachers who lose track entirely of what is meant here, what is promised, what is not promised. Some offers, true, are too good to be true. And you look at them, and you look at them again, and you think, nah, this doesn't quite work, there's a catch. And you're right, there is, because that's the world, isn't it, for you there? That's the hirelings, that's the false promises. This is not, and we'll come to see why this is not. How could it not be the best offer when you see the one who is making it? He has offered benefits embrace. We just sang in our hymn, didn't we? That's what this is saying. He has offered benefits embrace. So this is the best offer you'll ever hear. Anyone will ever make to you. And we're all of us well advised to make sure that we have truly received this offer and are living in the good of it. First heading, a solemn promise. A solemn promise. You pick it up, don't you, from the words, and you pick it up from all that went before it, all that comes after it, that we are dealing here, aren't we, with weighty, weighty matters, that we are touching on those issues that are the most solemn and the most important, standing before God, where we are, who we are, who we're listening to, where we're going. It's all here, isn't it? Well, who's making the offer? First of all, we can see who isn't making the offer because straight away, right in verse one, isn't it, that others try to get access to the sheepfold, but they don't come by the authorized route. They try and uh, get there by invalid means, invalid methods, and they are thieves and they are robbers. Even robbers don't, unless it's some sort of distraction burglary, but they don't usually knock at your door introduce themselves and uh, come in. They're, they're coming in through the back door. They're finding a way in at night there through the window. Don't let me terrify you at night. Sleep well. But that's what they do, isn't it? That's their time. They're looking for a way in that is not the door. Well, that's the thieves and the robbers. And later on, you see there are hirelings, people that have some responsibility in the church, people that have some nominal a responsibility towards the flock. But when push comes to shove, they've gone. They're not there. They weren't for real. They had some other agenda. They had some other hidden uh, thing that was a, what they were about. And as soon as they see an issue, they've gone. They've gone. They've completely abdicated responsibility and they fled to the hills. Well, there's not much good to be said for them because basically they leave the flock, the people of God, Exposed to the wolf. We know who the wolf is. That's the devil. The devil likes nothing better than just scatter people, scatter churches, break them up, divide them up, send them headlong in all directions. That, that's his policy. 
and be sure his policy doesn't stop short of small churches, doesn't have a threshold there. Well, they're too small to worry about. No, 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 they're just the people. I'm going to try and worry them. And so we see there are those who are not there with our best interests at heart. They offer maybe a quick fix. They offer there some sort of instant hope, life here on earth and all kinds of benefits to follow. But it's not real because they're not the true voice, the true and authentic voice that can speak, make promises, mean those promises, fulfill those promises. For that is our Lord Jesus Christ. You look, don't you? Somebody's making a promise. Well, are they reliable? Are they people that you can actually believe? And if their track record is of broken promises, then you might be disinclined to believe them when they make a big promise to you again. Or you look at their credentials. Well, are they in a position to make this promise? Are they really anywhere near the necessary expertise or authorization to be able to say to you and me, well, I can do this, or if you do that, then you'll get this benefit. When you look at their credentials, you might think, well, I think their credentials are missing. They're giving you financial advice, well and good, but what's their background? Oh, they're bankrupt a few times. Well, they're perhaps not the best people to listen to for financial advice. But here's the end of all argument. This is the Son of God. This is the Lord Jesus Christ who is saying to us here, saying to us very solemnly, I have come, and he contrasts himself, doesn't he, with the thief who has not come to bring you any good. He's come to take away from you. But he's come that you may have life, and you and I may have it more abundantly. And you notice in our translation, it's translated thus, isn't it? Most assuredly, I say to you, most assuredly, verily, verily, you'll find it in other Bible translations. Most assuredly, verse one, you'll see it again in verse seven, when our Lord speaks to them again, when he resumes his discourse with these people. And well, they're not doing well, are they? They're not actually understanding. Verse six, Jesus used this illustration, but they did not understand the things which he spoke to them. And there's no lack of clarity in him. The lack of clarity is in them. They can't hear it because they won't hear it. And so he underlines again, patiently for them, most assuredly. And that's an invitation to sit up and take notice, isn't it? That somebody is going to say something, I say to you. And that's big when he says, I say to you. He isn't kind of relying upon the rabbis such and such or Rabbi so-and-so, and kind of saying, well, he says it, and he's okay, so if I say it, it must be okay, right? And he's saying, I say to you, and then he's putting it in capital letters and underlying it by saying, most assuredly, I say to you, listen, he's saying, I mean this, listen, solemnly, I am wanting you to pay full attention, let these words sink in, the Lord will say to his disciples, and Often the result shows that they hadn't quite sunk in, but that's the appeal that he makes. That's the offer. Listen to the one who's making it. Listen to who he is. Listen to how he addresses us. Take him at his word, most assuredly. Well, some people there will say, I mean it most sincerely. Watch them, because they mean it most insincerely. They're using sincerity as a way of smuggling in their insincerity. But not him. Weigh my words. Because way the one who speaks these words, who I am. And he says, isn't he, 
I have come. Oh, that's full of meaning, isn't it? I have come. I've come for this precise purpose that you may have life. Put it personally here, that you may have life. If you will, you can have life. That's why he has come. It's the reason for his coming. Having life sounds important, doesn't it? And if you can have more abundant life, that sounds doubly important. That's why he is here. It is deeply significant, deeply significant, deeply, deeply relevant. Deeply relevant. For your soul's need and mine, this is deeply, deeply relevant. He is touching upon the very heart of the matter, life itself, the issues of life, who you and I are, how we can actually find in this life and the next life, solid things, lasting things, and enduring things. When he says I, that is itself significant. I am. I am, well, he's the good shepherd, isn't he? But I am the door, he says. Come through me, you find life. That's a claim, isn't it? That's a claim he is making there. And he's saying something even more significant than perhaps sat here, 2022, in our culture, that we would grasp. There, they didn't miss this at all. They knew that by saying, I am, he was actually referring to when God spoke to Moses. Moses had asked when he said, well, you're sending me to the people there, the slaves in Egypt. Who shall I say sent me? And the God answered, I am has sent you. I am who I am, which means that I am reality, that I exist because I exist. Tell them then that the one who is everything, the one who's made everything, the one who does not give an account for himself, he has sent you. That's when the Lord says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the bread of life. Whatever else he should say, he's saying there very explicitly, very deliberately, I am God. I'm using God's words. God's name. And I'm speaking them here as I am in the flesh, as I've come, yes, as a human being too, but as God, therefore speaking as God, therefore having infallibility and inerrancy and making promises that I can make and I can fulfill because of who I am. Deep, deep with significance and Well, later on, and this does excite them, doesn't it, in John 10, verse 30, when he says, I and my father are one. We are one. There is distinction between me and my father, but that distinction is in terms of person, not in terms of who we essentially are, God. I speak as God, my father speaks as God, and had the Lord chosen at that point to have brought the Holy Spirit into the the saying, and the Holy Spirit speaks as God. We are one while being distinct persons. And this generated the response in verse 31, John 10. Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. Now, despite the fact that people try their hardest to say, oh, he never said he was God, that the Lord Jesus Christ never said he was God. Well, it looks as if These people here heard it as such. Verse 32, Jesus answered them, Many good works I've shown you from my father. For which of those works do you stone me? The Jews answered him saying, 
For good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. Because you, being a man, make yourself God. He wasn't making himself God. He, he was God. And he was a man as well. That's true. But no blasphemy spoken here. But most assuredly, he speaks the truth to them. God is in their midst. What comfort there is in that. And yet what warning there is too, that if you don't hear him, there's nobody else that you will hear who will have the words of eternal life. Here he is speaking. God in their midst, the good shepherd, no less. Good shepherd, that's so big, isn't it? So large in this passage. Verse 11, I am the good shepherd. Good shepherd, bad shepherds. Well, these thieves and robbers, hirelings, they're no good. But I am the good shepherd. And how do we know? Well, because of what he will do. He's going to lay down his life. That's what the good shepherd does. He gives his life for the sheep. Cares for them that much that he'll do that. The hireling doesn't care. He'll, he'll run away. Doesn't fulfill his duty. The Lord Jesus Christ does. Uh, he knows what he has to do for his sheep that his sheep may have good pasture, that they may have life. He's going to have to die for them. And when he speaks of them hearing his voice, he talks about that, doesn't he, there? You'll find that about the, the voice. That's what they'll hear, his voice, verse 4 and verse 5. He brings out his own sheep, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. Yet they'll by no means follow a stranger, but will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. His voice, what will it convey? Well, it conveys love, that he's the good shepherd, that what he is doing for his people, dying for them, is opening up for them the way to God. And they hear something so real and authentic in it. They hear that he is the good shepherd. And it helps them to distinguish between the bad shepherds, to hear him who's the good shepherd, and hear him in what he's saying, but also in what he's doing. The appeal that he makes from the cross and how the elements at the communion table speak to us. Why, you could say they shout to us. There we hear his voice in this broken body and in this blood that was shed, in this unique, remarkable, special life that brought to his people, having come to his people with great affection and with great love, that they might have life. Here he is laying down all that he is, him being a man, but also God laying down his life for his sheep. So it is, verse 15, as the Father knows me, even so I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Verse 17, therefore my Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it again. It's going to rise from the dead. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This command I've received from my father. He will die when he dies. Not before, not a moment before. He has the power to do that. He has the power to stay alive through all kinds of threats and trials until the appointed time. When the hour has come, he will die then. But of course, he won't stay dead. He has power to take the life back again. And that comes out of the whole dignity of who he is as the God-man. He knows what lies ahead for him. Dear friends, do you hear this? Do you hear this? Do you hear the offer that is made to you? Moreover, do you hear the one 
and recognize the one who makes the offer to you and to me this morning. We know it's true because we know he is true. We know him and in him, in his voice, which is his actions and his life and his character, what he's going to do in laying down his life. We almost hear a calm authority, don't you? Uh, And in charge here. I'm in control. I know what I am saying. And so when they then come arguing back at him, why he's in control, reason, calm authority, and they're going to stone him. And yes, all they hear back is, is truth and reliable words, compassion even for them. Oh, yes, there's gravity in what he says, depth to what he says. It's arresting what he says. It has knowledge and insight. And it gives us knowledge and insight. And he has such an interest in us, doesn't he? Such a care, so stirred, so moved for you and for me, for what we're lacking and what we could have. The comparison between what we might think we have but haven't and what we could have in him. And it is so, so striking. A solemn promise. Second heading, what life? Well, what is this life in John 10 verse 10? That he has come that we may have. What is it he's offering to us? Well, it is not necessarily a long, healthy, physical life. Not long, long years. Years of plenty and ease and comfort to take away all your worries and just leave you there sailing through life, breezing through, as though really this was all that it was about. Wasn't that he was talking about? Nor life measured by the world and its standard, not hearing what they will account good and great. Oh, success and achievements and credentials, status and a following. Well, he doesn't offer us that in this. He offers us something much better than that. Eternal life. That's what this life is. Eternal life. John 10, there in verse 28. And I give them eternal life. And they shall never perish. Doesn't mean we're not going to die. We may die prematurely, but we may die, sad to say it, painfully. We may die over a protracted period of time, who can say? But we won't perish. And as much as saying here that God's hold upon us will never, ever weaken. That his, we're his. If we've come into eternal life, we've come into relationship with the true and living God. And we are his. And you note how he continues there with this eternal life. Them never perishing, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. Because you'll be safe. That's this life eternal. It's safe. Here is real safety. We say be safe. Well, he'll be safe. Because none will ever snatch you out of his hand. You'll have entered into eternal life, which doesn't just mean, well, when you die, Is all there waiting for you in the future? No, it's here in the present. It's now as well. You have eternal life. You've entered into a relationship with God, which guarantees your future. You're safe, secure. None will snatch you from his hand. And that has implications for then. When we come to the judgment day and stand before God, 
We can answer because Christ has answered for us. But this works in the here and the now as well. The life of heaven has begun in the believer the moment they first trust in the Lord. How is that? I know many of you, as most of you this morning can say, we found that true. And it only came to us because we were humbled and received forgiveness of sin. Oh, that took something, didn't it? Proud people that we are, self-opinionated people that we are by nature, entitled people, though we may feel that we are as if God owes us heaven, as though God owes us a relationship with him. So God should be pleased that we're doing his will. Well, we learned otherwise, didn't we, friends? We learned otherwise, or I hope we did, that we are totally insufficient that we are not adequate to compare with God, not adequate to come near to his holiness, nothing within us, nothing good there, nothing that can in any wise bring us into a state of good standing with God by the merits of our own character and works and who we are, why it is the opposite. And we learn, don't we, from the good shepherd, He's kind enough to tell us, kind enough to tell us where we're wrong, kind enough to, as it were, upend us when we're relying upon ourselves for salvation or think that eternal life, well, we already have it. We're born with it, won't we? He says, no, you won't. No, you won't. All your aims and all your hopes and all your desires are going to come to ruin. You're not going to succeed. You're going to fail and spectacularly on the day of judgment. You're not going to enter into life and you're not going to find any abundance other than loss and poverty. You'll find woe. You'll find hell. You'll find that place that I place those who never listened, never turned, held out for what you could achieve, held on to your own self-righteousness, clinged to your own vestiges of I'm all right. They all say that on the open air when you go, I'm all right. That's a giveaway statement there, but I can tell you this, they're not all right. They're perishing. That's what they're doing. They're perishing because only in Christ, and that'll be my third heading, only in Christ do we find a way through and not perish. And that's what we learnt. We are perishing, inadequate, insufficient. We haven't got life, we have death. And the death most significantly being the second death. We have the wrath of God to face. We have his, his displeasure to meet with and his displeasure will be there visited upon us. And also we learn this, perhaps. We've been listening to the wrong voice. Many years, perhaps, we've lived within the pale of the church, within the pale of maybe even sound preaching. We hadn't heard it. And instead, we've been listening to thieves and robbers, people that were quietly draining the life out of us, who were promising us, which wasn't even true, and offering us, Things which would fail at the last. Nice feelings, maybe. Nice music, maybe. But it would fail. And it's not going to get us to heaven because we've been denied the hearing of what we needed for our soul to hear that we're perishing, to know that we are condemned by nature, that we might then learn wisdom, fear of the Lord, and begin to seek the help of the good shepherd who is kind enough to tell us the reality And the truth about ourselves, painful, humbling though it was, but needful 
And oh, how after that we see. They didn't care for us, these thieves and robbers. They never told us the truth. They withheld it from us. Or they dressed it up in a bit of Christian language. But the reality was missing from the heart of it. Then when we heard, then when we saw what this promise could do for us, and how the promise was the Son of God himself dying upon a cross, how there it answered for our need, and how there the one who was broken down and humbled there, broken down and humbled and abased and humiliated, that we may be raised up, that in him, through forgiveness of sin, by the humbling of our own souls, to seek that help, we might then be elevated, may kings and priests to our God and our Father, be made true worshippers that would draw near to him, clothed in his righteousness, all his good works and merits, as though they are ours to wear, walk in this world and there attired in heaven, in a most precise, in a most fitting way, that we should be regarded as holy for his sake. Oh, this is life, friends. This is the life. This is the real life. What was life before? Think back if you can. Remember if you can what it was to be a non-Christian. That was life. Oh, you shake your head, you say, whatever it was, it wasn't this. And this by comparison with that. And that's not to say life is easy for the Christian or health is just blooming and wonderful, far from it. But we know something that has just been a revolution in the very soul in our very heart of our being. Real life. Because it's brought us into relationship with God. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. If you're a believer now, you're in relationship with this being who made all things, who sustains life and breath and everything else. And you and I are related now to him. There's communion with him. That is life abundant. Because that's not stale and it's not static. That is not some once for all. And you think, well, that was it, was it? What now? Wait for heaven. Life's pretty hard, pretty grim. I'll just hang on. Is more. Friends, it is more. Because you are in relationship with him. And he's in relationship with you and with me. And he doesn't leave us alone. Good shepherds can't just leave the sheep out there and that's all right, job done, I'm off duty now. He's working on his sheep and showing us better pasture and leading us, taking us places, showing us a bit more about ourselves, that we can repent, that we can part company with that and part company with this, that we can push through here and leave behind those sins there and trust him more, find more of him, discover he loves that much. Yes, and even more than that. You can't fathom the width and the length and the depth and the height of this love. It surpasses knowledge. And there it is. It's your birthright and mine. It's your heritage. This is the abundant life. Oh, we might even say it just gets better and better. Trials, tribulations may get worse and worse. The hardships may increase. But this love and our hold upon it just gets better and better. That is life abundant. Transforming. Changing, interacting, communicating. That's a relationship, isn't it? It's not one person and the other person somewhere else. Well, what kind of relationship's that? So he's some absent landlord, some distant deity. He's not. We believe he's here in the midst. That's a bless. 
communicating with you, speaking to you, speaking to me, building your character, building mine, that we may know him better, know ourselves better too, and be wiser for that and change. And then take what we are out into the world, what we're becoming in Christ, the abundant life, taking it to others, speaking to them. And the more we know, the more we can urge, the more we know what they're missing, perishing out there with hell to come. Oh, that takes us to them, doesn't it? A little bit more willingly and a little bit more quickly. The life of the soul, the mind, the will, the emotions, the wholeness that it's bringing, that salvation, isn't it? Wholeness, rebuilding, healing us and making more and more the Bible to be an open book, ourselves to be an open book, God himself to be more and more an open book. And we can go to others with all that we've learned. That's life. Friends, that's more abundant life. That's what he's promising. That's what he's offering. Have you found that yet? Third heading, final heading, only in Christ. This is the thing. It's only in Christ. Books in the bookshops offering you this. Little mindfulness, perhaps, and you'll open up to who you really are. Really? A little self-help here? Perhaps a lie on the floor for an hour or so there, receiving some spiritual blessing. Oh, yes, that's life abundant, is it? Well, we have to differ from that. Everything outside of Christ essentially is foolishness. Foolishness. Going nowhere. Going nowhere. Talented people, but no character. No worth, no depth to them. Great energy. Change the world. But they morality. A number of adulterous relationships they'd had. How sad. Busy, busy people. Yet a, an essential emptiness to them. And when they stop being busy, that's when the trouble starts. There's nothing there. Nobody there. No, no purpose. They had to just keep busy because else they look at themselves. And suddenly, the world's falling apart. Character flaws that come more and more evident and sadly become more evident the older people get. They haven't learnt because it's only in Christ that you learn. It's been sad, hasn't it, then? Miserable, wretched affair with this Epstein fellow and all that we've learned. And, and the Maxwells. Well, those of us remember Robert Maxwell, don't we? And seeing Ghislaine Maxwell on trial there, if it's history that you know, well, you know where, where it was at and... Oh, the dysfunctionality of that family. Great wealth, great entitlements, great uh, great respect. And yet a lie that underneath lay there, embezzling money and stealing from the pension funds and all of the mess that that left behind and all of the mess that it left with the children. One looks at Gisley Maxwell and what she became. Oh, how sad. So many opportunities, so much life, if you will. Mixing all kinds of people there. Yes, for all of that, what character, what sadness underlay it all. But this abundant life, well, this is where talent and character come together. Make talent work for the benefit of others more. This is where energy that you may have, or perhaps may not have, but once had maybe. But it makes that energy to be harnessed to something good. Puts it in a direction that is going to be helpful, takes us into all kinds of things. And whatever we touch has benefit, brings something good. Music, art, poetry, whatever it might be. 
for it's not just what happens within these four walls. It's what happens outside of these four walls, who we are in the world, who we are taking our talents and our energies and our gifts and employing them for a good and a noble end. Life in the spirit, not stand still. That's fake religion. People just go round in circles, still searching for something, never find it. Looking for some experience, it never comes. Fake. That's thieves and robbers. That's their religion. Stealing from people, leaving them disillusioned at the end. Repetition, shallowness, emptiness, boredom, dullness. That's the other stuff. Friends, we have life more abundant. That is a life of thought and reflection, a life of creativity, a life of change, movement and progress. What an invitation. The best offer you and I will ever receive. It's yours. Have you found it? Have you made your peace with God? Has Christ become everything to you? And since you found him, yes, this life abundant, yours, is it? Is this you? Am I describing you or not? Has something got stuck somewhere? Have you stalled? Look at the offer. Look at the one making the offer. Don't give up. Keep searching, searching. Do you find something more of what he promises here? Not just in heaven. That'll be wonderful. But there's a bit more of heaven to be known here on earth. And wouldn't that be wonderful to pass your years, pass my years, fruitfulness, abundant life that's then poured out in service to others. Now there's an offer again, because that's what he brings. The best offer you'll ever hear.